and welcome to Twin Peaks The Return, a podcast for our discussion of part 16 of the series. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Hayley Inch, and I have a mouthful of chakwa tau. It's very nice. Oh, those are good. Yeah, and thank you. joining us this week is Nerdburger, Bismuth Hoban. Hi again. Hey, Hooray! thank you very much for stepping in and saving the day. Yes, yes. <laughs> we, we, we had a slight guest emergency, and Biz has been brought in at literally the 11th hour and saved our bacon, and we're very grateful for it because we already know that Biz has a bunch of fun theories about mm. this episode to unload on us all, and I'm so <laughs> excited. Me too. Well, shall we get started? Part 16. It doesn't get any better than this. Oh! <laughs> Boom. Lol. <laughs> no knock. No doorbell. Okay, so before we even open, we get the buzzing Rancho Rosa title card sign on a blue background for the first mm. time. What does it mean, Andy? I don't know what don't any know. of the... No, I, I haven't bought into auspicious. any of these. It's another sign that means auspicious. Things. Auspicious? Okay. Honestly, it put me in mind of the blue sky and golden trees and mountains that we had when uh, Norma and Ned finally got Oh, good together. call. Yeah. Yep, that was a very blue It felt scene. like it was evoking that kind of colour palette. Mm. Would we say it was akin to golden? Mm. Mm. It, well, there are elements of it, I think, yeah. Mm. It was friendly to golden. Um. Yes. Mm. Um, friend of the podcast, well, friend of yours, Hayley, um, Emily Stevens from AB Club. Hey! I uh, <laughs> said, wrote that it's easy to wish it could move faster, but also it's as futile as Jerry Horn looking at the wrong end of the binoculars and cursing the lenses instead of his own blunder in perspective. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was a fantastic way to talk about this episode specifically because there is a lot of stress and tension and mm. resolution. Stress and, and tension and perspectives. A lot of perspective. Yeah. Also, that article was fantastic, but that was the best line from it. For yes. Yeah. He's not a stranger to a Thank best Thank you, lines. Emily. Um, then we move to Headlights on a Highway, oh. Doppelkoop and Richard. Lost highway roads are never a good sign. Always ominous. Doppelkoop um, is never a good sign. We get a very sad, bassy, battlementy cue and they drive in silence. The music fades down as Doppelkoop pulls over and takes a side road. Richard looks quite uneasily. And, you know, given that there's a lot of audience pressure, like can we please resolve some lingering questions here? Yeah. This silence is even more powerful, I think. Eventually they arrive at an empty field where Doppelkoop turns on floodlights and looks across. And then he checks this uh, gadget he has, which checks uh, GPS coordinates, I'm pretty sure. And he says, I'm looking for a place. Do you understand a place? Three people have given me coordinates to that place. Two of the coordinates match. What would you do, Richard? I'd check out the two that match. You're a very bright young man. Oh. <laughs> and so Richard is dispatched towards this large rock that um, is sitting in the field. Meanwhile, Jerry Horn is running toward it from the other direction. Jesus, where has Jerry run himself to in his hopped-up madness? <laughs> <laughs> well, th- this location reminded me of the actual real-life uh, coordinates in South Dakota that people have been using when they've uh, come across them on Bill Hastings' website. Has Jerry run straight over state lines? This is what I was first thinking. Then I was like, no, 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 no. I think these are, this is a different place. It just looks a bit like that. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't think Jerry's strokes are quite good enough to give him that much staying power. He is an old man now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I'm guessing it has been several days since he had a proper meal. <laughs> that's a really good point. So we, so we can implicitly assume this is somewhere on the outskirts of Twin Peaks. I Definitely. think so. Yes, yes, at least in Washington. Uh, so Richard uh, behaves like a good son. And walks up the this stone, um, following the, the the directions to emit a beeping sound when he's getting close, and then a continuous tone when he's actually right where the coordinates are. Uh, his shadow grows as he approaches it. Jerry, we cut back to Jerry again, who is still struggling with his binoculars, 
And then there's a massive electrocution takes place when the continuous tone sounds and Richard is fried. Bag Coop zapped him into pyrotechnics. Yeah, I was, this was a really strange scene. Like, it seemed like the lightning was coming from inside him rather than the sky. It was very weird. And there was a lot of gold spray. Yeah, it felt very much like there was a magical trap going on there. Mm, I yeah. think so. Do you think we'll see him again? I'm not sure. A lot, a lot of the recaps I've read seem pretty convinced that he's dead and that if he is, some of them have also, you know, opined that, you know, given how much tension and stress and plot points seem to swirl around Richard, it's a pretty, um, it's a very anticlimactic end yeah. for him. You know, yeah, in a way. I'm mm. I'm a little bit more inclined to think that maybe he has been zapped somewhere else. Because mm-hmm. as we notice, particularly during this episode and all through the return, there are many somewhere else's. Yes, yes. Yeah. And the goal always seems to have been to get the bad Cooper back into the lodge. Um, mm. you know, everyone seems to have been aiming towards that rather than just killing him. So yeah. it's possible whatever happened to Richards popped him into a lodge, but... Mm-hmm. Also, his body did dissolve and then his head exploded. So <laughs> that that might yeah. impact his long-term survivability. It wasn't as clean as Ray's death. No. No. And I, the noise that Bag Coop makes oh. does, it, oh, does sound like he vaguely wasn't expecting what just happened to have happened. Yeah. Also, you know, it's, it's a bit fucking rough on Jerry to see his grandnephew smoked into a blue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or Jerry. you know, no, no, no matter what the rest of the horns' feelings for Richard are, I think that would be extremely distressing to witness. Mm. Yes, I think so too. It's particularly if he recognised him. Although I'm not sure how much Jerry was recognising of anything at that point. Mm. Um, Good bye, my son says Double Coop, and he turns and walks back to the car while Jerry says, "Bad binoculars, bad binoculars," mm. and um, gets frustrated. Bad confirmation of theory. Bad confirmation <laughs> of theory. <laughs> Um, you can all imagine how I was feeling about this time. The worst theory is true, Haley. Mm. It's just, I don't know. Mm. Can we come back to that in the well, Diane well, section? We've, we, we've well, got some thoughts. Yeah? We've got some thoughts, mm. mainly about shitty writing around women. But anyway, mm, okay. let us continue. So Double Coop gets out his phone and sends a smiley face emoticon and the word all with a full stop at 2.05am, according to his phone. I did, this, uh, I did make note of these times because it's uh, all over the shop. Mm. But this this message isn't delivered, so I think he's out of range or something at the moment. Um, what do you do? You guys have a theory about these three coordinates? Because it, I'm really confused by this. Like, the, so the three I'm assuming he's talking about came from Diane, from Jeffrey's slash teapot, and Ray, who and yeah. So Diane's and Ray's seem to have come from the same place. They both came from the from Ruth's arm. So I'm not sure if he has two or if he has three or three sources, and one of them is wrong and two of them are right. So. Um, Ray is being is in league with Jeffries, who's trying to kill D- Doppelcoop. Yep. Diane, so I think Je- Jeffries gave him the wrong ones twice, and uh, which was leading him to that point. Diane gave him the correct ones, which she got off the which she got off Ruth's arm um, from yep. the photo. So I think that this is what's going on. So he's realised this when when you know he sent um, Richard up to get fried for him on behalf, like to set the like mm-hmm. a trap, and then he's realised that you know Diane now needs to be told to kill the Blue Rose crew. Mm. So I think the smiley face we learn later is very, very key as an emoticon. Yeah. It's a very creepy smiley face. It is. There's too many many components. Yeah. 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 Mm. Speaking of creepy, though, one thing I was thinking um, about the whole sequence with Richard and the weird anti-climax of his death is that it really nails home who Doppelkuber is as a person. Well, I say person. Monstrous antagonist. You know, we've had this whole 
a whole series worth of watching how Doppelkooper constantly creates people and uses them as tools to avoid ever having to go back. What's Richard but just another tool he created? He just used a slightly different and more upsetting method. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's a good point. Mm. Mm. He's not much more than a tolper as far as Doppelkoop's concerned. Mm. Yeah. 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 Uh, from this uh, very dark scene, we cut to the bright um, sunlight of Lancelot Court with the Jones household, outside of which is a black fan with South Dakota number plates, and inside is Hutch and Chantel are wearing dirty white overalls and watching the house while Chantel is eating snack food in a rapidly diminishing supply of snack food. Dangerous. Yes. Can't be nearly out of corn-based snacks. No. <laughs> Do not let her run out. No, you wouldn't like her when she's run out. <laughs> Uh, I shouldn't love them so much, but I really do oh, love on, Chantel yes. and Hutch. They're mm. two of the most charming characters. Like, despite their horrifying murder <laughs> murder relationship, they are yeah. genuinely enjoyable and they've always got each other's backs. It's really fun to watch them. Mm. It, it probably also helps that, you know, they are played by extreme calibre actors such as mm-hmm. Jennifer Jason Leigh and Tim Roth. Yes, definitely. You hear a bird this morning? Sure as shit did. And then two black cars arrive, men in suits exit, and then they, as they watch, interestingly, the men cover the exits, and then we've noticed that it's uh, Randell and Wilson, two of the funnier people to have turned up in the last half of the, um, the return, I think. Um, looks like nobody's home. How did you, did you deduce that, Sherlock? <laughs> Wilson, get going. They start shouting. Wilson gets shouted at again. Then they drive off to find uh, to look for Dougie at the Lucky 7 Insurance. Uh, poor old Wilson just spending his entire life being screamed at by Stan from Mad Men. He tries <laughs> yeah. so hard just to recap what's happening and just gets yelled at it every time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Um, and then we cut to the hospital where Dougie's on life support and Janie and Sonny Jim are at his side. And I noticed it's the Memorial Hospital, according to his wristband. Mm. And I just sat there thinking, oh, they are not going to like delay a Cooper reveal for another episode, are they? Oh, God. <laughs> I was seeing there thinking, I was just can't like, oh, there. He's going to spend this entire episode in that bed. Because yep. that's what you, that's that's what you assume. That's what, that's what the pace has taught us <laughs> yep. so far. Um, and Janie uh, he sits there and says, when people go into a coma, they can stay there for years. Which I found highly ironic considering that, you know, Coop's pretty much already been in a form of that for decades yes. <laughs> and also nearly the entirety of the return you're not wrong Janie <laughs> then did a coma have something to do with electricity well in this case it did and then uh, the two Mitchums turn up and they come in with a huge bunch of flowers and being extremely gregarious and Janie and Sunny meet them and everyone seems very happy then there's a hilarious interlude of Candy handing out some finger sandwiches which accused um, Bradley to make a fairly dad joke about finger sandwiches uh, we want to be as helpful as possible and pay our respects all things considered, he looks good. And the doctors are being very helpful and everybody seems very positive and they go to decide, they tell Jenny that they're going to go stock her house as well. Yeah, um, it's interesting that the Mitchum brothers who are, who are introduced to us as, you know, kind of seedy gangster types who've been potentially involved in fraud and definitely have had people beaten on screen in front of us before are now changed to the point where they're you know, going out of their way to make sure that a suburban housewife is cared for while her husband's in hospital. Yeah. You know, yeah. They, they've... There's been a real shift, and it's been fun to watch how, how much of that's Cooper, but how much of that is just he's kind of creating community again, mm, and yeah. that communal good is happening around him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it certainly seemed like, even from the beginning, it always seemed like clearly as long as you help the family and are on the side of the family and don't try and screw the family, yeah. then, you know, everything's hunky-dory. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, it's true. It's really interesting, particularly toward the end of the episode where we get the... Um, 
we get some you know runes and banter about that. But it also kind of throws to the way that this has happened for a lot of people, like the Bobby's transformation from like low life hood to upstanding member of the constabulary. It's kind of interesting. Even even Cooper had a pretty dark past, you know, where he fell in love with his partner's wife and people died as a result of that. And yeah, so it's, yeah, it's really interesting to see these transitions and how they seem to sometimes move at rocket speed when it becomes important. Um, we get a really interesting cut at this point to Gordon in the. I think he's in Buckhorn. He's definitely in a very well equipped hotel. It seems like mm-hmm. it would be too grand for Buckhorn, but maybe somewhere near. Buckhorn. No, no, I think it is. They've just taken over that hotel and turned it into yeah. an FBI substation. Very nice hotel. Yeah, mm-hmm. they've been there for a fair few episodes now. So mm. yeah. Uh, yeah, and he seems to be able to listen to the machines, the, like the, the the way that the sounds are cut across these two. It sounds like there's the heart monitor going. Yeah. Yeah, there was actually a couple of, of scenes uh, or cuts between places where the sound carried over. Mm. There's another really key one later that we'll come to, but this was really, really telling. Um, he looks very troubled and uh, it's like it feels like he can see Dougie's hospital's life support machine. We cut to the Jones's house where Hutch and Chantel are watching and waiting and Randall and Wilson now approach in their Ford Explorer, which is also black. And there seems to this shot as if there's a sort of a standoff between the two vehicles out on Lancelot Court. Um, and yet they don't pay any attention to each other. No, hmm. no, it's kind of weird. There's some more chat between them about a guy called Sammy who passed away, who owed um, Hutch money. Oh, no, uh, Hutch owed him money. Sorry, Hutch owed him money, that's right, yes. And then a white limo turns up. Um, with a black van <laughs> behind it, and true to their word, the Mitchams are sort of stocking the Jones household with uh, food and what looks like an awful lot of champagne. All the important things. Yeah, there. and then the, then Candy and the other two girls uh, taking food as well, and it all looks kind of like a circus. It's um, Hutch describes it. Mm. And then a very key individual turns up in another car. Yes, a white car with Zawaski accounting written on the side. Our new friend. <laughs> I have a feeling he's not really an accountant guy. Don't <laughs> what say. makes you think that? <laughs> a gentleman gets out and he asks them to move their van. You're in my driveway. I'm not even close to your fucking driveway. I move car. He rams their car and just tries to push it and then this turns into a gunfight and then all of a sudden this amazing left turn turned for the story of Hutch and Chantel, who we were expecting to maybe get shot by the FBI or somebody if there was going to be a showdown. FBI the, or the Mitchells. Like, that's the, the thing. You yeah, kind Mitchums. of just assume that that was what was going to get set up and not for this fourth entity that we had not seen before to suddenly... <laughs> for us to get a complete Coen Brothers moment. Yeah. Totally, just, co- yeah. yes, totally Absolutely Coen Brothers. Coen Brothers moment. Yeah. I mean, this is all watched by the Mitchums who draw a gun for personal safety and just watch the entire thing play out, <laughs> as do the FBI. The FBI just don't step in at no. all. Hmm. No. There's, um, Come on, Wilson, get with it. <laughs> what kind of a road is this? People are under a lot of stress, Bradley. <laughs> She's, yeah, 2017 in a can, really. Yeah. And then as soon as this, uh, this plays out and uh, Hutch and Chantelle are dispatched with by, was it an Uzi? Uh, yeah, it was, I think I've seen it described as kind of a modified homemade Uzi. Oh, well, yeah. it was a very effective weapon. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, Hutch and Chantelle suddenly shot down in a hail of bullets, Bonnie and Clyde style. Yes, I was not expecting them to have their own Bonnie and Clyde moment, but damn, I appreciated it. Mm. Yep, and then as soon as this has uh, taken place and the van kind of bumps into a tree in a kind of a pathetic expense... And ends up in someone else's driveway. (laughs) Oh, good point, yeah. (laughs) That's when the FBI step in, in, put the gun down, now slowly back away from your gun, and Wilson is taking charge. Hooray! About damn time. Yeah, so he he could do it all the time. As soon as it comes to the crunch, he's actually great. Um, the Mitchums go back inside and the camera rises in this kind of beautiful way as the FBI approach and call for an ambulance and the Polish accountant is brought under Zavosky. control. Zavosky, yes. Yeah. I just want to go back and make sure we cover an extremely important conversation that was happening between Hutch and Chantel mm-hmm. before they got 
you know, sadly gunned down, which was Chantel was on her last bag of corn base. It's snacks. the last fucking bag. It's the last fucking bag. You know, so clearly she was extremely dependent. Mm. On those Cheetos knockoffs. And I also particularly love this exchange in where no quarter was given when Hutch goes to Chantel after she's been wigging out about the fact that there's no more Cormay snacks. You on the rag, what if I fucking was? Whoa. Please load the Emmy cannon and aim it at Jennifer Jason (laughs) Lee. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Yes, that was an extremely key scene. Astonishing uh, little bit of repartee between those Such two. Such a wonderful farewell to those two. Oh, <laughs> like they went it. out exactly loved as ridiculous yeah. as they started. And Absolutely. it's like an ending. It's like, oh mm. my God, mm. Lynch yeah. and Frost can do it. Yeah, mm. they can wrap up a storyline. Mm. I mean, we finally got it with Norma and Ed last week. So True. Yeah. This is true. And as Biz pointed out to us off air, this now leaves Doppelkoop with no one. Mm. He has no little gang anymore. As oh, far as we know. He's got the boys in Montana. He technically won by punching that guy to oh, death. Oh, that's true. But I yeah. don't think he wants them. No, no. No, <laughs> no, I would not be surprised if you managed to, to corral Red or somebody, some sort of people like that. Red seems to be a really fascinating character and I hope we return to him because he seems people to... People are very fascinated by him. He, need, he kind of just provides what people need. Yeah. Like Shelley wants a bad boyfriend and he turned up and he's a bad boyfriend. People want Sparkle. He can provide them with Sparkle and Doppelgoop is probably going to need some cavalry to... Whatever we're going to see next week. Anyway, Richard wanted to be reminded of his insignificance to the wider plot. He was. (laughs) (laughs) Still in Las Vegas, uh, Sunny Jim is drinking a soft drink while Janie sits and watches, and Bushnell is now keeping an eye on Dougie while Janie takes Sunny to pee. Bushnell gets a call from Phil saying that the FBI were just looking for Dougie at work. What's he done now? He's in a coma. <laughs> Did you tell him we were there? Yes, they left 10 minutes ago. And Bushnell peers very closely at Dougie's face. My notes here just say, Kyle's face is so handsome in all caps. <laughs> and that's it. That's uh, fair. Yeah. Correct me. Yeah. Good observation. There you go. Also, in case we get readers mail about the use of the term fizzy drink soda. Oh yes, or pop. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a nice Australianism for you all. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, while uh, Bushnell is watching, we get the magic sound, the uh, tone that is associated with the White Lodge. That's the one. Uh, This uh, we've seen in a few key instances before, and now we can begin to associate it with with Mike. And sure enough, uh, Mike appears. Dougie suddenly sits up, pulls the tubes out of his face. Are you back? One hundred percent. Finally. Finally. Bless that bloke from that other place. The meta points go off the scale as Mike says finally and yeah. along with about five million people around the world at the same time. <laughs> and then we managed to get this astonishing interaction between the real world and the White Lodge, which I think is a first, where you can just kind of hand things between dimensions and chat in a way that would have been extremely handy in earlier seasons. But I'm just imagining that this is the sort of ability that comes with having spent 25 years in there. I feel like Cooper's had some time to develop his abilities there. (laughs) And he's clearly been spending his time as Dougie formulating, you know, a working theory of what's going on, even while he couldn't actually surface. Yes, he's been gathering information. It's been phenomenal. And it takes zero seconds at all before he's back in action and ordering people around, who seem kind of surprised but very glad, of course, that Cooper is finally back. Oh, my God, I'm still getting emotional thinking about it. It was a lot of crying yesterday and shouting. I'm sure I wasn't alone. Um, <clears throat> he's still out, Mike says, and he gives Cooper the ring. 
um, do you have the seed? And then uh, there's a short inter- exchange in which uh, Cooper pulls out a bit of hair, I think, and gives it to Mike or a bit of skin or something. Hair, I think. Yeah, yeah. and asks him to make another one. So presumably create, to create a better version of Dougie based on his own DNA and abilities. Yes. Dougie yes. 2.0. Dougie better, 2.0. handsomer, stronger. <laughs> ah, more Kyle. Husbander. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Less philanderer. Hopefully. Yes. Um, this time, Dougie give two rides. Oh, yes, good call. <laughs> oh, my God! <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, Janie and Sonny Jim come back in. Janie, can you please bring the car around to the front? Bushnell, you're going to need to give this to a person called Gordon, Gordon Cole is going to call. Suddenly, every, it's action stations and everything's happening at hyperspeed compared to how we've been for the last 15 episodes. Yeah, and just immediately, you know, talks about Bushnell's hidden firearms yes. that Dougie would have had no opportunity to see. So Cooper's, yeah, that that's the bit that really sold me on. Cooper's been paying attention this whole time. He's just not been able to get anywhere near the controls. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Bushnell, pass me some of those sandwiches. I'm starving. (laughs) Well, yeah, he hasn't eaten in, like, 25 years. (laughs) (laughs) Just chocolate cake, I suppose. Yeah. And Um, cherry pie and coffee. Mm. Yeah, that has... So much coffee. So much coffee. Will you confirm that my vitals are okay, he says to a nurse, played by Lena Logan, the great northern desk clerk from part one. There you go. I know, it was beautiful. I was hoping that she would turn up. I was expecting her to turn up in the great northern, but I'm very glad to see her here. Mm. Confirming that he is perfect. Mm. Which we could all agree with. Yep. Yeah, no, we all know that. Yeah. Maybe downstairs. Uh, thank you very much, Bushnell. Um, Janie and Sonny leave as per his wishes. Um, Dad sure is talking a lot. Yes, he sure is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he sure is. I love how, like, Janie and Sonny Jim obviously just completely fall in and just follow along with Coop because that's what you do when Coop is around. You fall in and you just do what he says. But, you know, yeah, Sonny Jim, is he's, he's a very perceptive kid. He knows that something is very different. And Janie just looks like ever so slightly polaxed of just like the emotions haven't all quite come to the forefront of her face like she is still just processing yeah. acting <laughs> I just love that just turning the cannon towards Naomi what's now her <laughs> turn <laughs> Um, I just love that you can again throw Cooper into a brand new community and he just turns it into a good thing. Mm-hmm. He brings people together and everyone's very happy and uh, you know quite sad when he's leaving. So you, can you get the Mitchum brothers on the phone? He says to Bushnell, sure thing. Rodney, I'm bringing my family to the casino. I need a plane to Spokane, Washington. Girls, let's go for a plane ride. So and put- then that most beautiful musical cue <laughs> that had me sobbing into a pillow. Finally, yeah. in all yeah. its glory. Yeah. <sighs> theme i have a feeling a man named gordon cole will call here and if he does read him this message you're a fine man bushnell mullins what about the fbi i, I am, am the, the fbi, FBI. <sighs> fasten your seatbelt thank you david lynch thank for a 16 me. hour delayed gratification like that mm, it was <laughs> there's all sorts of um yeah like an- analogies you can make about that mm-hmm Given that we're Everyone just took a sip of water to prevent yes. ourselves from making the obvious busted nut joke. Yep. Oh. Did not need to. Enough. That's enough nut busting happening on the internet already. Yep. Um, all manners of interpreting that statement. Reddit um, was a flood. No. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it was a that's glorious an image thing. I don't need. Sorry. Um, they get into the brand new BMW. Janie E, how do you get to the Silver Mustang Casino? We're going to see the Mitchum brothers. Dad can drive. <laughs> He's really good. And Janie's immediate assumption is, you're not going to start gambling again, are you? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I really love how Janie can just take everything that happens. Mm. 
Yeah. She's just she's just such an adaptable woman. I just really admire that. She assimilates. She does. Mm. She's just like, oh, okay, this she, is what's happening now. She brings the power of her personality to everything important. The moment mm. she thinks that even though this new improved Dougie might be going back to his bad habits, she's like, no, we're not doing that. Mm. Yeah. But he shows his resolve. He shows his steel. And she's like, all right, I'll yeah. let you drive. Yeah. Dumb. Yeah. Brilliant. So many powers. She's been, even been pulling out the power of attorney, basically, for the last 12 episodes. Yeah. As the theme plays out, it still lingers over a shot we see of Diane at a bar awaiting a message on her phone. Yep. <laughs> and the mood begins to change quite quickly. Um, she get, she receives Doppelcoop's message at 4.31pm um, and the theme suddenly stops as soon as this turns Screeches up. Screeches to a halt, really. Yeah, it's more like... Doppelcoop doesn't deserve theme music. <laughs> no, no, no. And yet he side. kind of has one that comes back this episode. Mm. He does, yes, any second yeah. now. She receives this message and seems to understand it in a way that we possibly don't yet. Um, and she looks very shocked and then surprised and then guilty and then scared. Like, again, it's like Laura Dern's face is just off the charts at the moment. Mm-hmm. Then she says to herself, I remember. Oh, Coop, I remember. She takes the phone and then texts him the coordinates. It's now 4.44pm, according to the phone. I hope this works, she says to herself. And then she closes her purse, but we get a glimpse inside of it, which has a, is a packet of American spirit cigarettes and a revolver. Which is where the message made perfect sense to me. And I got very worried. Mm, <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, then we get the, the, the huge drum sound from part one kicks back in mm. and we've got American Woman, the same... The David Lynch remix, as it's credited. yes. God, it's a hideous cacophony, isn't it? Oh, isn't it's it? It's so upsetting and I adore <laughs> it's it. It's huge and dark and sparse and it's just, mm. oh, it's so strange to see it juxtaposed against this particular scene in a fairly well-lit hotel bar. Mm. And then we get the beautiful tracking shot of Diane walking away from the bar and then into an elevator with really dark red wood behind her and then out and then along a corridor toward the room with coal in it as the kind of song rises and we get distorted vocals happening. Then we get a cut to Cole, who can sense that she's coming. Yeah. But without even needing to say to look up, he says, come in, Diane. Did you think of anything this was significant? Or do you think this is just Cole being... I mean, it bolsters my theory that Cole is the same kind of seer that we've encountered in Twin Peaks before. More, more on that later, though. Yeah, yeah I, I've always assumed that despite his hearing, Cole has quite heightened other senses and can generally tell when things are around or something is approaching, mm. that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, he does seem to sense things on a different level. Diane walks into the room. Um, then, we, then we get a, sh- a shot to see that Albert and Tammy are also there, sitting behind a desk. Diane sits on the, the green chair. The last week matched her jacket. Uh, and then Cole looks at her and she says, you asked me about the night that Cooper came to visit me. I'm going to tell you. Astonishing tension throughout this scene. Like, mm. it's just at any moment. It's like you can tell things are really, really wrong. It's and- Chekhov's gun. You've yeah. seen cool. a gun. Yeah. <laughs> you know it's going to get used. Yeah, it's just mm. uh, happening very quickly now. Yeah. Uh, you want a drink, says Albert, and he makes her a drink. And she opens her purse <gasps> and she checks her phone and then she gets the same text message again. This time it's at 3.50pm. So she's been, she gets sent the, the smiley emoticon all mm. twice, like once before, then the coordinates, then the next time we see it, there's no message above it. She sips in the glass and pulls out, opens her purse again, <gasps> this time pulls out a cigarette, and then she begins to tell her horrific story. The, the Again, shifts in tone where it becomes this quite explanatory thing like he came to visit me he wanted to know all about the bureau I hadn't seen him for three or four years um, one night no knock no doorbell he just walked in and I don't want to read out the whole thing because I can't do justice to the the words but it is a really horrific story in which she describes being raped and then taken to an old gas station she also re- refers to the fact that he smiled and he smiled in this really strange way which we've already seen with the emoticon which is so this is some sort of triggering power move, yeah clearly 
Um, and then she looks at the text and then she gasps like she can't breathe. And then she grabs her collar and then says, I'm in the sheriff's station, the sheriff's station. I sent him those coordinates because I'm not me. And then she looks at the person, pulls out the gun as if everybody's been expecting it. Albert and Tammy shoot her straight away. And then she flies out the window. And uh, Tammy turns to Albert and says, they're real. That was a real tulpa. Sheriff's station, says Gordon. And then they stare at the empty chair. Mm. What did you make of this development? It was a lot. Yes, it was a lot. Yes. It was I mean, again, rotating that Amy Cannon in Laura Dern's direction mm. this time because the delivery of this in the scene is the one thing that held it together for me. I may have changed the desktop on my work computer to that image of <laughs> when David Lynch was trying to get Laura Dern an Academy Award nomination for Inland Empire and it's just him sitting by the side of the road somewhere in LA next to a cow and a big placard that says, for your consideration, Laura Dern. Yeah. Because yeah. Laura Dern, everyone. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> That was my emotion. Like, that image is my emotions on watching that scene. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, yes. It's phenomenal. For your consideration, everyone. Yeah. Laura yeah. Dern forever. Mm-hmm. So the, there was the theory that we kept, we've been mentioning the last, I don't know, five, ten weeks or something about there being Diane working with Doppelcoop, and I was all like, no, 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 Diane's amazing. We saw how she reacted to him in the, in the prison, in Yankton Prison, and there's no way that that was just acting, and... And it wasn't. Doubles, man. Because it's not. Because it's not. In a way, it's not acting. Because as we've seen, various other doubles definitely have the memories of their their originators. Yeah. Some of them just can't access them emotionally or there's some some kind of block preventing them there. But other tulpas clearly can access that emotional reaction to those memories. Yes, well, I Particularly think... Particularly if they're traumatic. Yeah, so my understanding, because I, for quite a while, thought tulpas and doppelgangers were interchangeable, but they're not. Tulpas no. are created by doppelgangers. Mm-hmm. Yes, as... Well, they as, can be created by lodge spirits as well, I guess, because yeah. Mike isn't really a doppelganger of anyone. No. But he appears to be happy to create something for Cooper. Mm. Yes, yeah, that's true. Uh, shall we address the large... Elephant in the room? Yes, yes, it's probably a good time to do that. Mm. Oh, David Lynch so. and rape. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so. Sorry, folks, it's going to get heavy. Soz, mm. but, you know. Let's talk. I would feel like we were not servicing what had happened if we did not discuss Especially with the double reveal in this episode, it feels like a really important point to talk about it. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Lead the way, Biz. All right. The only thing that didn't make, like, that kept me from just switching the TV off um, upon that upon the reveal from Diane was Laura Dern's acting in this. She sold the agony and the fear and the sudden terror at remembering this so well that the framing of it as something we're just meant to be passively horrified by because Doppelcooper did it rather than engaged on an emotional level with Diane there because it was an expositional piece rather than yes, yeah, so it certainly began that way. Yeah. yeah. Time. Mm. Um, Honestly, her delivery is the only thing that really kept that scene together for me because the reveal that Audrey was in fact raped while she was in a coma following the bank explosion mm. and has produced a child because he's 25 years old. Yes. Yeah. Not great. Not yeah, great. It's just, yeah, rape as a plot device and rape as a means of... Traumatising yeah. women characters. Yeah, traumatising without... women characters mm. and using that as kind of like the big motivation as to why 
certain things happen, mm. they have to be balanced so well. And like, I, I do want to say that there are areas where Twin Peaks does this really, really well. Yeah. Like the story of Laura has always been so fundamentally well done and so... Yeah. The emotions are always at the forefront, and her experience is always at the foref- at, at the forefront. I mean, what what is Fire Walk with Me than an entire movie devoted to giving Laura back her agency and making her more than the terrible things that happened to her? I think the problem with the way that what's happened to Diane and what's happened to Audrey has been presented so far. And like, look, we've got another two hours. There may be some stuff that comes up that kind of nullifies this uneasy presentation or just bad presentation that we've had so far. The the way that Diane and Audrey's stories have been presented is just, oh, it's just the big twist. It's the big twist of their characters thus far. That is what sits really uncomfortably with me that now their characters are almost you know the most important thing about them in the return is what Doppelcoop has done to them at this stage at this stage there's still two hours left and there's still the potential that that's going to be further nuanced and it's going to come out something better yeah I I have hope with the Audrey story just given how how that's been left to us like it seems like We'll, we'll get to it later, but the, the final scene with her in this episode, it seems like there is a turn towards seeing things from her viewpoint and seeing things from her experience and what she has been going through and giving her her own story back in a way because we've been given so little, mm, you know, or, yeah. or just very enigmatic, unexplained footage of her. But yeah, I I I have hope for the Audrey story. The Diane story went down with me like a rock and a leg. Mm, yeah, okay. I think the trick is the trickiest bit is that because we're watching serially, we have to take what's given each week to us at face value. I mean, that's just part of the way that this is structured. Um, and because we've got this established pacing, like so much of this episode has been about, hey, this pacing is finally starting to pay off. This is where the big things are happening. This is where the fireworks are going off inside Richard Horn's body. Um, <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's that problem of it doesn't feel like there's enough time to tease out the nuance anymore. We're head, we're, we're careening headlong into the big showdown, the final moments where things always get super weird with Lynch, you know, mm, and things yeah. start to really just bubble up to the surface. I don't feel like we're ever go- we're going to get a really comprehensive look into Diane's mental state about what happened to her if we see the original yeah, Diane at all. That's the question. Yeah, yeah. do um, we even get her? Yeah, and so it's that problem of. Lynch has definitely done it really well in in the past. Firewalk with Me is a triumph of exploring the interiority of the survivor of sexual assault, who's then, you know, eventually killed by her abuser. Um, But he hasn't done it here. And it doesn't feel like we're getting the same level that we we got from him 25 years ago. Mm. Um, Which is a shame, but, you know, it happens. Um, Yeah. Sometimes people fall back into the easier narrative thing and for me, that's the bigger disappointment is that the return has been so much about resisting the easy and the common narrative for him to then reveal these two big twists in the same episode, which is supposed to be the big twisty one that throws us into the finale to go, well, okay, actually, you know, sexual assault, sexual assault, look how terrible Doppelcoop is. It's so much of what TV already does. And it's a shame because 
Lynch has been trying so hard to resist just doing what TV does. Mm. Mm. Like we've been saying, but we've got two hours. I have hope definitely for Audrey's story. I'm mm. a little bit more concerned about Diane's story, particularly now there are several rumours flying around as to who the real Diane is. Mm, where she There's may be. where she may be, who she may be. The one that really worries me is that Diane and Nido are the same person. I don't Which think I, I need to go into the... the reasons why that's not great. Mm. We're calling it the reverse Tojimura bullshit no. theory. Because... <laughs> If there's one thing you needed to learn from the original run of Twin Peaks, David Lynch and Mark Frost, it's don't do the yellow face. Jesus fucking Christ, don't do the yellow face. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, there's also a lot of good discussion about the possibility that Nido's smuggling souls. Yes. Out of wherever she was. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Which would explain the presence of Renette, for example. Yes, mm. and um, and that would be interesting. Yeah. I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd really like to see Nido as a complete entity yeah. who is mm. who is extremely important in mm. and of herself. And in the contemporary Australian discourse hell pit we're in, seeing a, po- a people smuggler presented positively would be hilarious yes. and great for me. It's oh, God. would be. That's, that's a <laughs> glorious idea. Yeah. There we go. And uh, Andy, I believe you're a fan of the other... F- theory as to who the real Diane might be. Diane is Judy. Well, that is a good theory. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be... Because, you know, last week I was all for the whole Judy is in Nido's sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I convinced myself that made lots of sense. And now, you know, people are like, well, you know, Diane was originally somebody without any, you know, ability to respond in the in the first two seasons. So it makes sense, you know, plus if you look at her name, it's Diane backwards but with mm. a Japanese inflection or something like that. There's a whole bunch of... Yeah, People... the, but there's a lot of characters who've got some sort of anagram of Diane going oh, yeah. on. So <laughs> true, yes. Candy Mandy Sandy. Yeah. Um, Nadine. Even, yeah, Nadine, yeah. Yeah, as there's... someone pointed out recently. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's Jamie, all manner of ways you can of, make yeah. these connections if you want to. So I love this this smuggling souls idea. I hadn't thought of that. But, yeah. No, I like that. Well, considering that we've seen that you can build people from seeds and all yes. of that sort of thing, people can be scrunched down. So you think she might like open her mouth and all these golden balls will come out of salt with souls in them? Oh, far out. That would be a great... I'd be so ah, into that visually. Ah. I really hope yes. that's what happens. So yes. A plus. Yes. A glorious, a plus just like golden explosion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be brilliant. Just a stream of women returning to power. Yes, Hooray! thank you. In that case, it would be the opposite of mother if we're to believe that her yeah. mother is the experiment who. Oh, That'd shit. be great to have a visual parallel to that, yeah. With the Laura orb coming out. Yeah, yeah, and the Sarah Palmer with the black f- inside her face and Laura with the white inside her face. Because we do have to have a return of Laura. Maybe the real Judy was the friends we made along the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Judy is Twin Peaks. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Now, we'll, we should be we should get back to the story after that excellent and very, very worthy discourse, which I don't see enough people saying Discourse. Online. Discourse, yes. That's what you come to us for, people. Um, Bloody spicy well, takes. So, anyway. spicy so we did takes. kind of pause everything just before we get to the extremely striking shot of Diane sitting in the red room with, oh. in which she occupies mm. the bottom third of the frame. There's a beautiful depth of field going on here. Yeah, gosh. It's just glorious. <sighs> Um, and she sits in the chair facing Mike, and Mike tells her, someone manufactured you. Oh. I know. Fuck you. <laughs> Thank you, Laura Dern. We will be here all night waiting for you to come and grace us with your presence yes. again. I feel like we have to give props to the guest a couple of weeks ago who guessed that perhaps Diane would be manufactured. Yes. Mm. This was in the very, very, very few people did this. Congratulations to Sarah Ward for mm. getting right on that one. Yeah, unlike me. Winner, winner, please come to the front to collect Josh again. With my whole... Yeah. Oh, no, Audrey's the mayor. 
<laughs> Twin Peaks theory. And, anyway. I still would have loved that. That, that was been still that though. still would have been amazing. I actually yeah. slightly mad that we were robbed of that. Yeah, there's Look, so many good season four. <laughs> Well, I'm still completely in love with the idea that actually this is going to turn out to be all about Sarah and Laura, their, their relationship, which was never explored, and all yes. the emotions that have not really been explored there where, you know, yes. did Sarah permit this abuse? Does Laura, is that how Laura's seen her? Is there, like, there's all sorts of stuff that and, yeah, the, latent power. That really dangerous territory around parents' complicity in their child's yes. abuse. Um, which Huge. I've actually read recently some really great studies on about how psychologically it's often a lot easier for children who have been abused to blame the parent who didn't step in. Mm-hmm. I would love to get a chance to see Cheryl Lee and Grace Sabisky take that kind of idea on because so would I. Good God, that would be some acting. Yeah, mm. yeah. But so, so we're still in the in the red room. Um, she opens her mouth, grinds her teeth, hunches her shoulders, and then we get this beautiful sort of really simple flash cutting between her arms being like an out and then in and then out and then in, and then black smoke or black fire to reference Hawks black fire uh, icon pours out of her neck and a golden ball falls forward and on toward Mike. And she, uh, we can say, oh, yeah, that's a tulpa. Amazing. It's interesting that there are tulpas that know that they've been manufactured and others that clearly don't know. Yeah. Because Dougie did not know he'd been manufactured. Well, I think Dougie's resistance to being manufactured is not, because Diane is obviously extremely strong because she breaks out of her tulpa mm. state to be able to communicate about her situation to the Blue Rose crew. Mm. And she's clearly fighting against this triggering, this um, the way that she's been triggered by Doppelgut. Yeah. Dougie was a very kind of passive person from what he we saw was. of him. Yeah. Mm. And um, that was his purpose. Just a quick jump back, though. Tammy. Tammy. Yes. Tammy has yes. won my heart over recently. Really? Like, in Great. the past few episodes, I've Great. gone from thinking she was quite interesting to genuinely adoring her. Especially Christabel's performance. The more she's I've watched beautifully it, the more... uncanny. I love it. And and the more I've watched her, the more that weird snake person fidgetiness really ties in well with her character and her need to prove herself. Mm-hmm. She's always just kind of chafing at the edges. And in this episode, she was so much more ramrod straight and composed. And, and then the... that little moment of wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah. my heart just leapt because I'm so happy for this like brilliant little FBI agent who's found mm-hmm. herself dragged into a world of magic. Yeah. I also love the fact that she did not hesitate and as soon as they realized that Diane was not who they thought they were, like she reacted simultaneously with Albert who's an agent of decades experience yeah. who would have gone through like the these sort of things before and performed without thinking and she did exactly the same yeah she's damn good at her job yeah and the fact that she was not even surprised like she was like oh they exist Mm. she's a topper like i mean she was definitely surprised but she was trying to play it cool yeah well she was extremely cool yeah (laughs) she's very very cool she was always cool (laughs) oh my god (laughs) yes then we go to the silver mustang where the jones are meeting the mitchams yeah who compliment him on his health Hmm. and then i would too yeah it's a miracle and then Dougie like, takes them away to uh, to have a, and then kneels down and then has a conversation with the family. I um, love that he physically puts himself on their level as well, and that Jenny joins him so that Sonny Jim's included in the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's really great blocking. It's there. such a coop move. Yep. Mm. Yeah, but the Mitchum's right off as side effects. Yep. <laughs> They're coming out of a coma. Oh, bless you, Jim Belushi. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Jim Belushi has been an un- un- has really been an unexpected gift. I yeah. know. For sure. Yeah, he really wasn't selling me at the beginning, but then once that pie was in that box, mm-hmm. man, I was all on board. Yep. Yep. Cooper kneels down. I have to go away for a while. I have to tell you how much I've enjoyed being with you. You've made my heart f- so full. 
We're a family, Dougie. I mean, I will be back. You're not Dougie? What? No, you're my dad. You're my dad. Flashback to Donna. Yep. You're my daddy. You're my daddy. Yeah. I'm your dad, Sonny Jim, and I love you. I love you both, and they have a big cry and hug. And then you'll see me walk back through that red door, and I'll be home for good. Yep. Well, we know what the seed's for. Yes. Mm, we do. Yep. Excellent. Like, again, we get some amazing acting. On Naomi Watts is just knocking it out of the park. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, scared, sad, then chases after him, and she tries to keep him and then kisses him fully on the mouth. Whoever you are, thank you. Oh, fuck yeah, Janie. You don't let Carl McLaughlin's face walk away without one last kiss. Yep. <laughs> and then Cooper goes to rejoin the Mitchums and walks out, and the camera backs away in this kind of beautiful way where it really feels like we're saying goodbye to them. They're surrounded by poker machines, and a weird scarab beetle turns up. Yeah. The odd focus on that as, you know, part It of the almost machine. looked like it was super, in, like, put on in post or something. Mm. It's very, yeah, very odd. And a very loaded sim- symbolism. And then we cut to the limo, where they're sitting in the back seat. Hooper is between the two uh, Mitchums. Candy, can we have a Bloody Mary? And she hands one to Bradley. Hooper is sitting on a black coffee out of a glass. Mm. Nice touch. Mm-hmm. Okay, you don't sell insurance. You're an FBI agent who's been missing for 25 years. Then uh, Cooper insists that they have hearts of gold and that they would like to be welcomed to the Sheriff's Department in Twin Peaks and that he, they should accompany him there. And I love Candy's response of, they do, they really <laughs> do. <laughs> And it just makes Bradley smile so much where he'd been kind of pissy with her again for mm. some reason. But then everything's just so much happier. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, it's yeah. really... Yeah, it's just... it solidifies those theories that people had rolling around that actually whoever Candy, Mandy and Sandy are, the Mitchums are really their benefactors and were yeah. helping them rather than exploiting them. Not, well, you know, m- in a way. Men, so probably a bit of both. Men, a uh, bit of both. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why do you think the Mitchums are going to Twin Peaks? I mean, because they could just lend him his plane. He didn't have yeah, to... Yeah, I'm wondering that too, but clearly Doggy's got something planned. Are they going to help buy the Great Northern or something? Or hmm. I mean, there's, you know, yeah. it would be kind of cool to see them with Ben and Jerry, should Jerry return. Them. I mean, that would be hilarious. Yeah. The Norwegians uh. part two. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I think we'll see a little more of what Cooper's got in store next week, and I'm... At this point, just happy to wait that one out because yeah. it doesn't make enough sense. I have a, I've got, got these yeah. wonderful visions in my head of... I think actually, at the moment, I'm thinking they're mainly there to allow Candy to be brought to Twin Peaks. I'm down for that. Yeah. And there's something that's important that's going to involve her at some point. Candy does strike me as very important. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Although, you know, I'm, I'm just very into the idea of the Mitchum brothers plus the Horn brothers plus the Truman brothers oh, so all I. interacting. Yes. If only Michael Onkin could have come back. Well, yeah. Maybe, yeah. He, maybe we, we'll get his voice or something. I don't know. Um, I thought it was also cool that he was like, you do have cuts of gold because it's almost like an insurance policy for the protection of Janie and Sonny Jim to have them as a family friend, as a communal. True. Yeah. Like, because they can, they've already got him a gym. You know, they're, they're big fans. Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome Edward Lewis Severson. His birthday. The third. Yes. Yeah. Yes. There you go. Mm. The vet is here. The yeah. vet. Been <laughs> waiting. Gave that, so they gave that to Haley recently, and she's been very fond of it since. He's so fond of the vet. <laughs> <laughs> um, he starts singing his song "Out of Sand," which has been around for a few weeks, available for download. It has some pretty uh, prescient lyrics. Who I was, I will never be again. I stare at my reflection to the bone. Yeah. Blue eyes look back at me full of blame and sympathy. ETC. Yeah. 
And then we get the entrance of someone we did not expect to see in here this suddenly. No, no, considering how difficult it seemed to be for her to leave where she was. We did leave her choking Charlie out on a couch, so... This is true, yeah. This was about the 814th time I shouted, no way, at the screen. (laughs) Only 814? Yeah, well, so far, so far. Mm. And she turns up without her coat, which was such a very important point Mm. in previous Mm. parts. And then the song finishes, and JR Star turns up back on stage again to say, ladies and gentlemen, Audrey's dance. Everybody seems to know exactly what to do. They clear the floor. And the light moves over to Orgy and she gets up from the stool where she's been sipping martinis with Charlie. And toasting Billy in front of him. <laughs> Hashtag power move. She's Audrey, she does what she wants. Yeah. And then the crowd begin to sway as she starts dancing and she smiles. Then the band are playing live on stage. It's just so beautiful watching Cheryl and Fenn really impressively physically traverse that uncertainty of being an older Audrey and then through her body, recovering little bits of the younger woman and showing them just through gesture and smile. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Again, Emmy Cannon is just doing the rounds well, this week. Yeah, her physicality... <laughs> is anyone was... not from this show going to get nominated? I'm um, going to say no. Mm, <laughs> no. Um, Showtime better sh- better throw some fucking money at these for, the con- for your consideration campaigns, let yeah. me tell yep. you. But I do love the way the, dan- the audience is dancing slightly different here. It's a lot, it's all, like before it was like she was born along with the music, talking about how dreamy it was, but now she seems to be more like... Emotionally involved. Yeah, there's yeah. bigger yeah. gestures. It's slightly exaggerated. It's like she's grown into it. But then she also, like you were saying, has that beautiful transformation. Like she seems to like visibly lose mm. years while she's dancing. I also like the fact that they tried to cover up her tattoo of an om symbol on her arm. And the internet went nuts trying to work out if it was the alcave symbol. <laughs> it looks, it kind of looks like it. Uh, yeah. Definitely in some shots. I would, yeah, I was on board for about, you know, a few minutes. Yeah, so there's a beautiful, the dancing scene, you know, and then suddenly it's interrupted by a fight between um, throwing man and man hit with bottle. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, um, credit. Over Monique. Monique, yeah, yeah. That's my wife, you asshole. I think is the dialogue from that scene. And we did kind of briefly see um, man thrown at um, and a woman kind of walking past in the front as um, Audrey and Charlie were getting to the bar. So, oh, did we? Yeah. Sorry. Didn't they kind of passed by each other. Yeah. Right. Okay. Nice one. Yeah, and so this suddenly seems to break um, the spell. Audrey runs to Charlie and says, get me out of here. And suddenly we kind of cut to possibly the, one of the most telling shots we've seen in an episode full of telling shots. Audrey is in a white room staring at a circular mirror that looks like a vanity mirror and looks extremely distressed as if she's just woken up or seeing herself for the first time. And she says the word what, then what, and then we cut back to the roadhouse where the whole where the band began playing Audrey's dance backwards over the closing credits. Starring Carl McLaughlin. Starring Carl McLaughlin. <sighs> okay, so I don't know. I'm imagining like everybody else. I was like, oh my God, she's in the real world. Hang on. She's not. Hang on. No, she is. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. This, oh. is, yeah. this is the exact progression of my notes where I'm just like, oh, what? Oh, she is in the roadhouse. Wait, it's, it's not the roadhouse. Oh, shit. We're somewhere else. Oh, shit. We're somewhere else. <laughs> Well, we also get the sound of electricity over that yeah. shot. We do. So but the weird thing is we get the establishing shot that we've always been getting with the roadhouse. Mm. So there's that yes. weird feeling that we're at once there and not there. Yeah. Mm. I think it is also very telling that the Ved is the musical guest for this particular episode because when was Pearl Jam's heyday? The early 90s. Yeah. Where did we last leave Audrey? In the early 90s. Mm. Wherever she's been, she does not have more up-to-date musical Yeah, she's, musical just, she's not down with the chromatics. Mm, no. Or MP3s, probably, generally. I don't know. I'm, I'm not entirely sold on the idea that she's been in whatever place she's been for the entire time. Oh, tell me your theories. Yeah, I want to hear theories, this. theories. 
they've always referred to her having been in a coma. It's always past tense. Mm. And Richard clearly at least knows something about his mother. Like, he's aware of her in some way. There's never been any reference to Richard growing up without her. No. So I think whatever's gone on, it's definitely been... There's been some intermediary period where Audrey has been a mother, a single mother, for her terrible half-doppelganger baby. And for whatever reason, is now in this other place. Um, my personal take on it has always been that Audrey's worked out something about what's going on in Twin Peaks and has been basically jailed with Charlie as her gate, as her keeper for whatever she's found out. Right. Okay. Um, because it it's Audrey. You know, the, the woman who at the very, at, at the end of season two said that she's going to become a detective, that she's going to solve the mysteries now. She yeah. was always very good at finding out stuff. She's very Audrey Horn and she gets what she wants. Yeah, she And does. what she wants is the truth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So ah. I, I think Audrey stumbled on something. Yeah. And well, I think we're going to find out more of what that is next week. Yeah, I love that idea. Yeah. yeah. This is all just, I said it last week, this is fucking Twin Peaks Shutter Island. Yeah. Well, no, I like it. Okay, so it's interesting because now we have a parallel between um, uh, Cooper and Audrey. The 25 years. Yeah. There's been like, you know, they're secluded away. But like, like you were saying, I, I, I do agree that she has been, there was a period where she was a single mother. But then the phrasing of that of uh, Richard's line was that there was something of my mother's. It's not like she pulled it out and showed it to him. But it's, the image of Cooper is not seen as being an evil force in Twin Peaks. Yeah. So there's, there's some sort of thing. Like my, my idea was during the rape there was uh, that happened during the coma, that was enough to traumatise her and separate mind from body because obviously it's a struggling traumatic thing that she may or may not remember, but her body remembers it. There's a cellular memory happening there. So mm. there is some sort of other, other place in which she's kept or there's been a, what, the way that that's played out in, in our life, in her life, in the real world, is for her to be like institutionalised, although it's such a weird institution because it's glass, it's a vanity mirror. Well, they don't let you have mirrors in no, psychiatric so, no. care. That's, that's not a thing. No, that's definitely not a thing. Yeah. So um, I do not think it's any sort of institution. Like, no. I don't think it's anything official. No, I wouldn't be surprised if it's I don't part think of it's a, anywhere in real world. It's another dimension mm. of the White yeah. Lodge or something along yeah, those lines. Um, like there's, there's no definition to the walls. When you, when you get that... Cl- I know it's a close shot of her, but there's no indicators of like lines of wall or ceiling no or floor. No space. She's just in a white void yeah, with like, a mirror. Well, the only, only white void we've seen so far is inside Laura's head. Yeah. I don't know if it's that's that's the same void. Oh, maybe Laura's keeping her safe. Wow, that'd be so sweet. I was really fascinated with how this big ending scene played out, and it made me so much more invested in Audrey's storyline, even with the confirmation of the worst theory, because I feel like whatever's at play here is going to be very, very, very intriguing, yeah. and hopefully it plays out in a way that is satisfying. But then again, we've got two hours left. And as everyone knows, Lynch likes to amp, sh- you know, ramp shit up when there is minimal <laughs> time left. And what tends to go down may not be satisfying Would for all parties. Would you be really angry if we didn't see her again? Uh, well, look, to be honest, I'm, I'm going into next week basically expecting not to be satisfied right because i've never been satisfied with the lynch ending ever no, hang on fire you walk know. with me oh except for fire, fire walk, walk with, with me, me. Yeah. fire walk with me is the only satisfying lynch ending and maybe june because uh, <laughs> june is hilarious um but yeah no so i'm kind of going into the next two hours of whatever happens happens 
I will be not be I will not be surprised at all if something outrageous happens. I will not be surprised if a bunch of things are not resolved. I wouldn't be not surprised if it ends on a fucking cliffhanger. Yeah. At all. Yeah, yeah. At yeah. all. They, they are yeah, good at my doing default it. assumption yeah. is we're getting some sort of cliffhanger here. Yes. Because why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? <laughs> why wouldn't he use why this last he? chance? Yeah. To piss us all off one last time. <laughs> and I would buy him a drink for it. Yeah. And thank him. Yeah. No, I'm I'm looking forward to being just given a magnificent fuck you. Yeah, yeah. It will be glorious. Yeah. Um so what do you, what do you think is happening with the roadhouse now? Do you think it is one that she's imagined just for this particular part or are certain other scenes we've seen in the roadhouse actually happening in a different dimension? Because it does have a history of being home to White Lodge spirits. Like the yeah. giant turned up on the stage a, a few times. I definitely think that whole thing we've been noticing, the, I know you've been talking about on this podcast a lot, of Twin Peaks being kind of there and not there, is at play. I think for whatever reason Audrey's moving between spaces and... She might have been in a roadhouse, but it wasn't necessarily the roadhouse the rest of the town's been in recently. The behaviour of the crowd especially indicated to me that at some point, either during uh, at the end of Eddie's song or when she got in there in the first place, she stepped from one kind of space into another. Right. Yeah. I think like the behaviour was enough to indicate okay, so that weird it, shift. It's kind of like the scene we saw with the old man on the stage and then the giant replaces him Yeah. for, for Cooper. Mm. And to pass on the message. Well, yeah, because yeah, the I mean the band shows up out of nowhere, so it's that fade in, fade out yeah. of the magical realm coming to interact with the normal. And yeah, because we're getting a lot of dark, darker magic here now. Like you know, a lot of people freaking out on Sparkle. You know, Ruby last week, for example. Mm. Speaking of, uh, someone's done a side by side. So you've got um, Cooper going for the wall socket, Ruby going along the ground and screaming, and Audrey doing her dance. The moment Cooper hit Cooper and Ruby hit the ground is when Audrey hits the floor. And the moment the fork hits the socket and Ruby starts screaming is the moment she wakes up and sees in the mirror. Yes, oh, right. Yeah. Oh my God. Some weird synchronicity going well, on there. Yeah, I mean, my initial yeah. thought was, you know, because of Richard's being buzzed by electricity, that's why we're getting Audrey waking up because mm. there's a, an inseparable bond between those two. Yeah. Okay, that's awesome. That's good. That's really interesting to know about that side by side. God, there's been a lot of side by sides. It's really fun to watch. Just I, I don't know whether it's intentional or not, but and like I would totally buy that. There's some weird, carefully done choreography between these scenes because I would not put that past Lynch whatsoever. No, not at all. But at the same time, it could just be weird synchronicities because Lynch is all about that. Well, the weird thing is that it's kind of through... Like, like this scene put more weight behind that ridiculous theory that I brought out last week that she's trapped in the booth, the wood of the booth. Yeah. Which nobody, everybody on here thought it was a fish in the percolator. And then within, <laughs> within minutes of that episode, suddenly Reddit is lighting up with people going, oh my God, the wood theory. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. I still don't buy it. Neither do I. But I, I, I think it's it's eased its way out of the percolator, just like a scooch. Mm. It's got a, it's got a fin on the oh, edge, kind of leading out. That's very generous of you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. It's, okay. it's kind of surveying the Martell house now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish we could see that again. Also, like the so the whole Diane thing. Just going back to that for a moment. Mm. That Sarah Ward, you know, successfully called out. Didn't even at any point mention Diane's the name given to Diane's hairstyle. Yep, I know. It's sitting there it? the whole time. Yeah. Mm. Um, also, the um, the fact that uh, we may have seen two Dianes, well, you know, there's a Diane fighting against herself. One, uh, they, her, she smokes American spirit cigarettes, same as um, Sarah, but mm. sometimes Sarah buys Salem's. Yeah. Ooh. Witch. Mm. Witch. Cigarettes for a witch and cigarettes spirit for a witch. Spirit yeah. witch. 
anyway, there's something going on with the cigarettes here that could probably mm. deserve its own IndieWire article, which we yeah. won't write. Plus, someone made a very good point about the spiritual finger on Diane's nail polish. Oh, being yeah. Purple. Mm. Or mauve. Very mauve. good point. Oh, my God, the mauve. Mauve alert. Mauve, mauve police. Mauve police. Mauve. Thanks, Thembi. Yeah. Thembi yeah. always, yeah, does that. Now for what will probably be our last ever theory fish. Hashtag theory fish. theory fish. I would like to take this moment to thank the Twin Peaks fan community in general for their provision of theories, especially those people whose theories were so good that they were instantly shared and then I managed to not track down the author. <laughs> so thank you very much for everybody who's come up with brilliant things that I've um, brought onto the podcast. Thank you also for your glorious uh, rambling online discussions. I'd like to also especially thank the listeners for bearing with us all through all this theorising and through all my spectacular errors and misjudgments that are all part of exploring this world. So now to the section of the show where I posit a theory taken from the internet and Haley and Biss, sorry, rate it either there's a fish in the percolator, it stinks, keep fishing with a green butt skunk lure, or I caught a trout in my pyjamas, it's fresh. This week's theory comes from Jenny Anderson and was posted on the website Welcome to Twin Peaks. And Jenny posits... Audrey has suffered from dissociative identity disorder, maybe caused by bad Cooper a long time ago. A person named Tina has been occupying Audrey's body and Audrey herself has been hiding in a dream. Finally, Audrey had courage and danced her way out of the dream and replaces the Tina identity. Hmm. I'm going to put it in the percolator. Right. Because I have a fair few friends who live with dissociative identity disorder and no... That's not how any of it works mm, okay. at all. I mean, it could be TV DID, but, you know, on that personal level, I'm just going to... Right, okay. I think dissociative personality might be something that is going on with Audrey. I don't know if it's that neat. Mm, okay. And I think from what we've seen, I think whatever is happening with Audrey is going to turn out far more fantastical than I think mm. okay, cause we had been, previously been betting on. There is something weird going on with Tina. Tina, you know, has been... Who appears not to exist anywhere on screen so far, so it yes. totally makes sense that and she... You know, has, a child, has a daughter whose name we haven't heard. Could be Linda. Yeah. Possibly. That's a good point. I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm in the middle. I'm a green butt skunk lure. I think there are parts of that I like the idea of, but, yeah, I'm not looking to these guys for accurate portrayals of mental illness, but neither do I think that she's Tina. For the second theory fish, this comes from Martin Diaz. We've touched on a similar one before, but this now we've had more information given to us about tulpas. This, uh, this is kind of taken on an extra dimension, I think. This also comes from the Welcome to Twin Peaks website forum. We are like the dreamer who dreams and lives inside the dream, but who is the dreamer? A tulpa is not necessarily a creation based or copied from another. A tulpa can be a person or an animal, a landscape, an object, or a non-human entity, whatever the creator wants to imagine. A tulpa can be a new creation as the product of meditation or a strong suggestion, which can obtain autonomy as more people believe in its existence. In this way, everything can be a giant tulpa, due to us living inside a dream. So when Gordon tells us the Monica Bellucci dream, he remembers the moment when Jeffries appeared and Gordon said, now I remember that. And then Albert said the same thing. At that moment, it was as if the dreamer was directing the dream and allows them to remember some things. But if the town of Twin Peaks disappears in the same way we saw the convenience store disappear, this would make sense. Is Twin Peaks a giant tulpa that lots and lots of people just believe exists? Oh. Martin, you've flummoxed us. It, it is easing its way into the leg of my pyjamas. It's kind of brushing up against my calf, and I'm a little <laughs> bit unsure about how fresh it feels. 
Um, I the, love the idea of it that Twin Peaks itself or sections of Twin Peaks or various people existing in it could be tulpas. I think there's definitely something going on with the town in terms of its metaphysical placement. Mm. Like there's definitely that there and not there feeling to yes. a lot of the stuff that's been happening. I don't know for sure that I think it falls under the tulpa position because there's a there's got to be a purpose for it and it seems like Twin Peaks is more the staging ground for the final encounter than it is a device by which mm. people are enacting something. Um, because Martin actually in this post is a very very long post and mm. also he posits that the Nez Pierce invented the Black and White Lodge and they believed in it. So as oh. like religion itself it became something that lots of people believed in and therefore they saw things and believed things to be real which we mm. see through as real as well. So I don't know, I think this is really interesting. I'm I think there's definitely several levels of reality existing in time. Well, this would explain these crazy time mm. frames that we're trying time to get our heads around. Time shifts and places in the town that feel more real than others, places in the town that appear to not have changed, places in the town that have changed extraordinarily. I think, yeah, there's there's definitely levels going on here. Mm. What kind of levels, metaphysically mm. or theoretically or what have you, yeah. I yeah. don't think it's quite clear yet. Mm. Okay. Or may ever be clear. Mm. Quite possible I, as well. I think on a fourth wall kind of breaking level, which to some extent the return's been doing since it started, it's great to have the idea of Twin Peaks, the town, as something just is collectively believed in by an external audience, as it were. Um, yeah. I think the fish is like firmly lodged around my knee mm. in my pajamas, and okay. I, I'm not going to kick it out. Yes, okay. but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to go any further with it on the first day. Yes, I do find a certain interest in that kind of idea of looking at Twin yeah. Peaks as um, a device for identification and mm. reflection, though, because um, one of the things I've recently been reading, um, hat tip to Reddit user Lion in a Coma, mm. um, for discussing um, the links between Foucault's theory of the heterotopia and Twin Peaks. Hang on, um, please explain heterotopia. So heterotopia is literally just other place. Um, it's an idea that Michel Foucault came up with and talked about fairly heavily um, in the essay of Other Places. Um, and it's about how we often create spaces that have some imaginary component or some virtual component, often to allow us to conceive of utopia and thus identify reality. Um, it really t- it ties into a lot of his other theories, but um, some of his ideas are things like uh, places of ritual, so churches, mosques, but also lodges, saunas, saunas, right? And okay. Lodges as well, yeah. Like the lodges would very much fall into that ritual place. Mm-hmm. They're accessed through careful means, through specific forms and gestures and ideas. Um, but one of the ideas he worked with heavily was the idea of the gay sauna that protected place where particular rituals are enacted and for which access is limited to a select few who have the existing knowledge. I'm not saying that Philip Jeffries and Doppelkoop hooked up in a steam room, but they kind of did. Yeah. Similar social theories apply? Good. Yeah. Good. Um, right. yeah, no, that, that, I agree. Yeah. Just very, I'm very into that idea that in Twin Peaks we're given a lot of situations and things which are somewhat abstracted from reality to help us define the reality. Right, yeah. Um, we have the image of Bob in the mirror. Like, um, in the essay on heterotopias, Foucault talks a lot about the mirror as a really useful heterotopia. It's that thing which lets us see ourselves over there. Even though we know we're right there, but it lets us define our position in space. It lets us define our position and our idea of ourself. Yeah. And that beautiful image at the end of season two where we see Bob in the mirror, 
well, despite, you know, having Doppelcoop there. Um, I think there's always been that kind of interesting play with image and location in Twin Peaks. And I think as we get close to the end, I, def- I think we're going to see more of that play between real space and imagined space and slightly removed from reality space. Because there's definitely spaces within spaces within spaces mm-hmm. sandwiched through the world of Twin Peaks and yeah. you need to have certain knowledge or you need to be a certain type of person or you need to be invited by someone else into these very ritualistic or highly codified spaces. Yeah. Um, Doppelcoop's part journey in part 15, you know, mm. not only locating the convenience store, which wasn't really there in the first place, but transversing it up the stairs into a space that we saw in the fire walk with me and then through both the forest and a hallway upstairs into the motel from fire walk with me. Mm. And from there, possibly back into one of the rooms that Cooper had been in episode three yep. to talk to Philip Jeffries, the teapot. <laughs> yeah. There's this constant movement between spaces and constant movement between ideas of spaces and that perceptual filter, I think, that play yeah. with perception is something I've really enjoyed. Well, in yeah, this isn't something that's new either because the black and white lodges have always existed simultaneously in the same place, yeah. you know, hence the chevron patterns. And but how you view it helps determine how you understand yourself and the space you're in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and your fate, mm. ultimately. Yeah, so that's a, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. Is, is that a theory? I'm putting a trout in my pyjamas about I, that theory. I'll hand you the trout you do with Ooh, thank you. Wish. Delicious. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. I, I always like anything that reminds you or gets you to thinking about film as an architectural space and a space mm. that you yourself as a viewer can actually enter, whether it's through looking at it or in your mind and the way you contextualise it and that the screen is a space in relation to your body but also the world contained within it also includes your body and the way that you haptically react to things. Um, does anyone else have any insights or reflections on part 16 before we say goodbye uh, to Theory Fish forever as it swims off down the stream? Oh, that's very poetical services. too. Uh, <laughs> right, I'm going to throw a fish in. Do it. The Woodsman. Yes. <gasps> Andy and I have talked about this a little bit before. I'm contending that the Woodsmen are meant to represent not just a sense of general evil, but specifically they're meant to be a manifestation of American evils in a nuclear age. Right. They're nuclear shadows. They were born within a nuclear blast. Is that the first time we ever saw them, I think? Well, we see them in the immediate fallout. Hey. Yes. Um, but, um, so, I don't know if you know much about the nuclear shadows in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, so I've been fortunate enough to go to the Peace Park in Hiroshima. Um, there are some places where um, due to what happened with the initial blast, they're actually the shadows of people just permanently etched into concrete. It's actually more that the space around them was bleached by the blast, like it was deprived of colour and so there's this dark spot where a person was standing in the way. Um, But these shadows are like a very important part of um, the symbology and iconography around discussions of nuclear violence. Um, And I think the weird shadowy like inky blackness of them and especially the weird way that they're introduced so in such a manner reminiscent of like old 50s monster movies which were all about american nuclear paranoia um i think that there's definitely something going on there with how the woodsmen are presented in that they're a manifestation of 
one of America's great sins, which is weaponizing atomic energy. Um, yeah, that's fascinating because well, so with the with the with their birth, the very first one we see is like the Abraham Lincoln impersonator. Yeah, who I've, I'm always presumed that he took that image off a coin. And also, you know, we get the the story, the backstory to the convenience story is that it was also caught in a blast, and this is why it moves in and out of phase and occupies two dimensions, like you were saying. Mm. But that is fascinating because I think we're going to return to that. I think we're going to return to part eight in some form next week. Absolutely. There's, you know, we, there's still all these theories about bug swallowing girl, mm. how that's going to manifest. Um, yeah, that's this. There's there's a lot more to say about mm. that. Yeah, and I think we're definitely going to return to it because we know that you know. Twin Peaks likes looping its important episodes back together with themselves. And I would be very surprised if the finale doesn't have some kind of, you know, throwback to episode eight. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we open in 1956 and then move forward mm. or something like that. I'm kind of hoping we get a lot of little bits confirmed. Like, personal pet favourite theory is that uh, Madeline Zena's character Tracy from <gasps> episode one. Yes. I get. I really want to believe that she was like specifically sent in to spy on what was going on with the glass box, like banging the cute dude. Yeah, that's fine. But she was there to work out what was going on. You yeah, know? she was yeah. there to infiltrate. I'd yeah. love it if it turned out she was FBI. Mm-hmm. I've got much like littlest sliver of hope that we're going to get some reference to that before yeah. the end, but probably yeah. not. Yeah, there's a lot more going on there. Than I can we... dream though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's the dreamer? I think that's a thing. Maybe hope for little things to happen and don't hope for the big things because we all know that, you know, well, what, what, what David thinks is important <laughs> and what we think is important are two very different things. I, th- I think we've seen enough of his thought process now to be able to know that finding Laura is going to be one of the big set pieces yes. at the end like that's I would ho- I we've would got to come so. back to that hopefully yeah. yeah well the fact that now Laura is tied in with this atomic energy mm. atomic you know this you know weaponized mm. science in a way a way that we can access another dimension through that it's, it's just it's just huge like the, we need to come back to this part eight there's so much yeah. Laura lore that we've been given and we've yet to see resolved speaking of Laura um, another thing I've seen mentioned is that back in season two uh, when the giant visits Cooper in his bed he says, you forgot something, and pushes a golden light into him. Right. Hello. Yeah. This is, this is a long-forgotten piece that I re- you know, someone mentioned, and then I watched the episode and went, oh, shit. A golden circle of light was placed inside Cooper during season two. God, okay. <gasps> so perhaps Laura was inside him all along. Um, yeah, maybe I'd- she's... Mm. Well, that ties in with that really weird theory, but I was going to mention for Theory Fish, but everybody's read about it already, which is Laura is is Cooper's mother. Oh, yes. Which I can put a link to in the show notes for those people not familiar with it. It's worth reading because it's, it's, um, it's it a is, green butt skunk. It is a thing. It's, it's yeah. a real thing. It's a green butt skunk, but I want it in my pyjamas. It's, it's a fantastically argued theory. <laughs> I don't, And it's a beautiful example of like what's plausible versus what's probable. Yeah. It's got a solid chance of making sense. It's whether or not that's the direction Lynch decided to go. That brings us to the end of our discussion of Part 16 and various attendant <laughs> theories and concepts. Um, and thank you for the foreshadowing of your excellent theory about the nuclear shadows. Uh, if you want to get back to us, uh, you can find us on Twitter at TP Season 3 or on Facebook at Twin Peaks The Return of Season 3 Podcast. I'm on Bismuth Machines on Twitter. And I'm on Andy Ricky on Twitter. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much for coming in at the 11th hour, Biz. You were wonderful, That's as per usual. It's fine. <laughs> 
Spokane, Washington.